0: This is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance, podcast number 83, uh, with me uh, in India, Varun Mathur. Hello. Uh, Hello. In Japan, where it's 3.30 in the morning, Hiroyuki Hamada.
1: Hi, John.
0: Hi, Hiroyuki. Uh, in Toronto, Cory, Morningstar. Mm. Hi, Hi Corey.
2: everybody. Hi, guys.
0: And uh, in Sweden, Johan Edibo. Hi, Johan. Hey. Nice to see you. Uh, I want to thank again people who write in from various places. I, it's nice when you comment on the site rather than send me emails. But either way is fine. It's great um, and, and much appreciated. Uh, this is uh, one week since the last podcasts because we're trying to do them a wee bit um more consistently more frequently uh and and i guess uh i'm gonna let johan start um this evening with a couple of things there's always you know oodles of
3: stuff to talk about but johan Sure. Yeah, I'll I'll dive right in then. So yeah, Jan, you you talked about this uh, this notion of the enclosure uh, as a as an economic phenomenon, as an institution of early capitalism in kind a of blog post, uh, and you you emphasized how this uh, this notion of capitalist improvement, the the introduction of the moral good of ownership and exploitation emerged and which is, of course, you know, deeply intertwined with uh, the with waivers, Webas, the Protestant ethics and all that. But, but you express it as this, uh, this idea through John Locke that the landlord whose land is improved by the work of his laborer, he is regarded as more industrious than the laborer himself. He's more useful. So, so you get right. this idea that managerial domination is morally superior to, to natural exploitative labor and this i think also is, is deeply connected with, with how it's an expression of progress of more advanced progress so the 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 distance alienated domination is a more perfect expression of progress than is the unrefined activity of the menial laborer and you see this in in how what we talked about last time how neoliberalism regards poverty as immoral it's the same kind of a thought figure but but i also in connection to to what i wrote wrote a few days ago i see a connection a conceptual connection to transgender ideology and transhumanism here because in a sense according to to this basic template you defined a transsexual body is is more refined than a merely natural one so in a certain sense it's this expression of the system's technological progress and, and refinement. And and I would would also say it's it's potentially this even over and above what's possible in relation to to general spectacular idealized aesthetics of the non-augmented human body, which you see in in everything from from, from fashion propaganda to modern advertising. Because it's a it's the refined, it's a developed sort of, of entity. In a, so, so here's a question to throw out there. Is this perhaps a part of the structural reason for, for transgender ideologies increasingly central role in, in, in contemporary imperial ideology? I think there's an argument to be made.
0: Yeah, um, I, I, it's an interesting argument, but uh, Varun, why don't you comment?
4: Yeah, I just want to, I think it's very, I mean, these observations are incredible in the sense that they also point to um, how atomistic and materialistic the ideology is in essence. And there is no, um, the road that's being followed is materialism. And it is also of leisure, right? So in the sense that the, the working class, has to be looked down upon the more. And that kind of ties into how people are aspiring towards being more king-like. So the, the underlying kind of, as, as, as you framed it, um, the, the, the prison of modern industrial civilization in that sense is of material comfort. And that is all that is being sought after, and indulgence. So the more those things that you have, the better off you are supposed to be and so that means that you get cut off from the work and which kind of justifies this idea of automating all industry so that that's the kind of i think that's the driving factor where it's looked at in the sense that yes that's a good thing so everybody doesn't have to work but the question then that arises is then what the hell is everybody going to be doing right
3: well
0: yeah and and this this reminds me of two things. Um, <clears throat> one is, and I want to talk about both, although they're somewhat separate. The first was just, and I've talked to you guys about this, that I saw a New York Times, I try to kind of check in with the New York Times because it's a barometer for, for some sort. Uh And a headline above the fold Above the cyber fold, it was a slow business day. But one of the um, slow news day. But one of the headlines was in the ec- economic section. The headline read: "Low unemployment, and yet, what is wrong?" Something like I probably paraphrase slightly. Low unemployment. Ponder that, grasshopper. Uh, Okay, that's topic number one. Just the extent to which mainstream media, the the prevailing propaganda machine of of government simply now fabricates stories. I mean obviously there's a homeless crisis. (laughs) So you're talking about a quarter percent drop in unemployment because of extraordinarily creative counting measures. Uh, if somebody's been unemployed for more than a year or something like that, they're no longer counted as unemployed. They're permanently something, permanently lazy. And uh, uh, it, it's a, it just, I just sat there kind of with my mouth open. Okay, the other thing I, I want to read, I'm just about to finish a blog post, which should be out about the same time this gets, <clears throat> um, gets up, this podcast. And I want to quote from, it's just a short paragraph from Jonathan Crary's most recent book, Scorched Earth a book I highly recommend. I recommend all of Crary. But let me just read this paragraph. Quote, the mythologies of a post-industrial information economy also obscure the persistence of earlier modes of production within the current scramble for resources essential to high-tech weaponry, communication networks, consumer technology, products, solar and wind energy systems, and much else. Violence to both people and their lands defines these imperial and neo-colonial operations, as it has for several centuries. The very possibility of a, in quotation marks, digital age requires the expansion of these destructive industrial practices to world vanquishing extremes. Close quote. Uh, this is something I yammer away at all the time. It seems to me that one of the prevailing tropes, if you will, in government rhetoric in in Neoliberal pundits and in, in influencers from all these various sources that are given great visibility. One of the <clears throat> prevailing mythologies is that we are in a new epic a digital age that somehow has signaled uh, uh, a separation from from earlier forms of capitalism and exploitation that that the digital will solve all these problems and so forth, except that the digital age has actually intensified all the violently extractive practices of of earlier and prevailing capitalism. In other words, it hasn't changed. And in fact, as I have said before, the world is more proletarianized than ever. So I think it's interesting to look at in light of Johann's article and his points about transhumanism, transgenderism, all of these AI, all of these these movements and ideas which are being mythologized in a sense, they are presented as part of some kind of emergent mythology. Post-industrial, post-post-post-post-modern, post-analog, whatever you want to call it, and 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 this is this is an illusion. This is a mystification of something, I think, on a very fundamental level, and and because it goes hand in hand with with climate. I mean, these are the propaganda subjects, right? <clears throat> COVID and the pandemic, vaccination, uh, AI, transhumanism, Great Reset, uh, and then the NATO-U.S. proxy war against Russia, uh, the looming saber rattling about China. These are all the things in which one is one is saturated with propaganda about which one
3: is
0: suffering. Mm, yeah. So,
3: yeah. so uh, yeah, let me, go ahead, Johan, I, I'm rambling. Sure, no, it was just agreeing on that note. <laughs> I, I also, a friend of mine, William Briggs, posted a piece recently, um, ob- making an observation I hadn't, hadn't actually caught myself, but it, it's apparently a, a, a new sort of narrative in, re- in relation to AI. is. That <laughs> it's apparently capable of, of reading our minds, and that's a I think <laughs> yes. that's an interesting can of, of worms to open up because it, it yeah, it's a it, uh, it has many interesting implications in relation to what, what your human consciousness is supposed to be and the 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 way in, in which it tends towards objectifying you as a as a commodity and all of that. But I, I also wanted to, as an example of, of how transgender discourse and symbolo- symbology pathology is being employed in, in in contemporary propaganda. I posted a picture in in our Telegram chat, which you can take a look at. But I'll just describe it for listeners. So it's it was posted by 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 Bush, a, a nominally leftist YouTuber, uh, about a year ago in February, right after the war began, and it depicts. It's it's a U.S. Abrams tank painted pink and with a Transgender flag. And the headline like U.S. tanks and uh, the the pronounced they and them. It, it's juxtaposed against a destroyed Russian tank. So it's it's it, it's it's a very blatant usage of of this this sort of, of imagery in in imperialist propaganda. And it, it, do you have any reflections on on that? Um, uh, yeah, what what are your thoughts? Well, um,
0: yeah, I mean, this has raised so many questions suddenly, uh, or topics. I I think I have never seen, I'll just say, and I've also said this before, but I have never seen in my life, going back to my adult life, uh, I was very young during Vietnam, since then, every every American conflict, CIA, coup, um, covert or overt, every US imperial interference in other sovereign nations has been accompanied by propaganda. So there's always a propaganda. Uh, If it was Noriega, if it was Aristide, if it was Gaddafi, uh, on and on and on, right up to to Soleimani. Um, I have, and Milosevic looms as a, as a really singular example, a perfect example, because the, the anti-Putin propaganda absolutely parallels what one saw with Milosevic, absolutely identical. And, and it was only a matter of time until the U.S. government would conjure up international law, something that the U.S. government has absolute contempt for, but never mind it's a useful argument for them, Putin should be arrested and brought to the Hague. Uh, Not Tony Blair, not George Bush, uh, but no uh, Vladimir Putin. And I've never seen, my point is, I've never seen this level of propaganda put out by the government, never, ever, ever. Nothing this extreme, nothing this relentless There you can't turn on the television, you can't go to a mainstream news site and not be introduced at the very top to some kind of anti-Russian story, some kind of depiction of either Russian incompetence, Russian stupidity, Russian moral bankruptcy. Russian evil, that the culture is evil, the society is evil, Putin is evil. It's endless. And when you ask people, there was there was a long thread actually on johan Moses, on one of his social media accounts uh, with with a guy who completely believes the propaganda and was not going to to listen to anything other than, pronouncements from the united nations or the new york times and and, or the u.s government and this is the definition of a closed mind and and you know you run into these people and there's not much you can do about it and that's okay uh just sort of walk back slowly away from them and and leave it at that but it struck me that this guy's thinking was very much like what i think the government hopes to achieve in in people that they expose to this propaganda and it's very interesting this blog post that i'm doing i went back because i begin this blog post with a sort of update on recent literature about heidegger richard Wolin has a new book out called heidegger in ruins because the there have been Recent publications, more publications, translations of of Heidegger's black notebooks, which I guess are very. He did a lot of writing Heidegger uh, in his journal, and 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 there's no longer any defense. One can no longer, in any way, shape, or form, explain away his delusional anti-Semitism, his anti-democratic fascist sympathies is just naked, it's, he was obsessed with it. He was an enthusiastic Nazi, not an incidental Nazi, not an accidental Nazi. He was a wholehearted, full tilt, um, cheerleader for, for national socialism. Anyway, that was the beginning of the blog post was to examine some of what Wolin wrote, look at structural anti-Semitism, how it works and so forth uh but also gets into this what what it is that that the effects that propaganda has and I went back and read the point is I went back and read again Adorno's jargon of authenticity his he published I actually don't remember when he published 1960 or something rather late I think and uh it was his critique of Heidegger And reading it this time, I was really struck with how prescient the observations are, how extraordinarily insightful uh, and and how relevant to contemporary propaganda was his critique uh, of Heidegger. I'll read a paragraph before we go off the air. It's a book that is worth reading. It's certainly one of the least uh, dense of Heidegger's work. It's his most polemical in a sense. Uh, but it's it's remarkable and and one of his points was that this jargon, the way this jargon works is is to ultimately i mean and Nietzsche figures into this too the french postmodern uh neutralization of Nietzsche in a sense but uh but one of the things that jargon achieves is to allow people to not understand what they're saying, that they don't really know what they're saying, but it doesn't matter, because they're part of this consensus, they're given approval, they feel approved of, they feel virtuous, and this this circles back to this moral character uh, that we talk about with the enclosures, with industriousness, with labor, with productivity, that productivity is itself a moral characteristic, to be productive, that land in the case of the 19th century should not remain fallow. This was the argument of manifest destiny. We can steal the land from the indigenous tribes uh, because they left it fallow. They weren't, you know, Native Americans just weren't productive, i.e., they were morally challenged somehow. Okay. Uh, uh, I've made a few points here. Somebody else talk here. Corey, what's going on? (laughs) Or Hiroyuki, wait. Hiroyuki woke up. Hiroyuki. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's heroic of you to be here. (laughs)
3: Probably
0: it
2: is. Heroic (laughs) (laughs) Hiroyuki.
1: Yeah, it is uh, sort of strange to be up uh, three in the morning and uh, doing this, but uh, uh, it's always happy to uh, see you guys and to do this but um I I I just keep coming back to the fact that the uh the restructuring of the uh, social formation requires the uh weakening of the uh, social institution and uh, um, also cohesions uh among the uh, communities alienation and all those things and uh, so in that light uh, transgenderism is totally uh, functional because it interferes with the uh, uh, social institution of family education biology and all those things and uh, On the other hand, um, uh, there's a need to ensure that the uh, imperial framework is uh, there and uh, enforced. So so we have um, a situation with Russia, which uh, put down this uh, idea that there is uh, international hierarchy and, um, um, uh, and it is farm. Um, enforced by all the institutions. So, um, uh, if you if we step back, really, really, um, it makes sense. I can almost see how these um, uh, bits and pieces of the parts are moving to ensure uh, the the restructuring and um, uh, uh, in this uh, dynamic of uh, things we observe in
0: yeah um that's a one of the things that um a, a comment uh commenter on my blog george mcsee uh who is a, a great guy i've invited him to be on this podcast i wish he would come and okay, he's a very very smart guy and he always makes great comments and he was saying largely what what you're saying here and and um that that all of there's a it's almost like there is a uh, an edifice of faux descent now that is is firmly in place like artificial counterfeit descent It, it it is the refinement of that limited hangout idea and uh i made a tweet the other day in which I said, I'm, I'm losing the thread here, so stay with me. Uh, I said that it seems to me, I wouldn't be surprised if nearly every official self-identifying leftist as leftist socialist website news organization was in some way a PSYOP, a, a staffed with agent provocateurs of some sort, that it, that it was part of this this intentional creation of, of a structure of inauthentic dissent, managed controlled dissent, because that's how it feels I, as, from the onset of COVID. This is what I have felt because, <clears throat> because the, the response to it was was so reactionary. And now you see these socialist magazines. There was one out of Australia uh socialist international i think talking about trans rights are workers rights and and i thought no actually that you're just you're confusing things and this is a category confusion and uh it's 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 making uh mark it's misreading marx it's misreading uh the entire idea of of capital, Marx's critique of capital, that's incorrect, and the class struggle is not does not operate that way, and and on and on, and and, and touched on some of this in, in his really excellent piece. Okay, but let me read you one more thing, uh, which is from Jargon of Authenticity, the Adorno, uh, because it's apropos of I hope, of what we're talking about here. Quote, whoever is versed in the jargon does not have to say what he thinks, does not even have to think it properly. The jargon takes over this task and devaluates thought. That the whole man should speak is authentic, comes from the core. Thus something occurs which the jargon itself stylizes as to occur. Communication clicks and puts forth as truth what should instead be suspect by virtue of the prompt collective agreement. The tone of the jargon has something in it of the seriousness of the augurs, arbitrarily independent from their context or conceptual content, conspiring with whatever is sacred. As words that are sacred without sacred content, as frozen emanations, the terms of the jargon of authenticity are products of the disintegration of the aura. He's referring to Benjamin there at the end. Um, I think this is a remarkable paragraph, personally, because this is exactly what you see today in people like the guy on the thread that I referred to, in Johann's post. to call it parroting is to give it too much credit too much substance it's not even that it's a it's a reflexive moving of your mouth or something your fingers on the keyboard it's automatic writing it's nothing the content has been erased the content has been neutralized scrubbed and it is simply what what it sounds uh corey
2: Yeah, so building on that, I think I was quickly trying to catch up today on the comments on our um, aesthetic resistance telegram that we share together as a group. And anyway, I thought Vroom really hit the nail on the head with this comment, so I'll just read it, it's very short. Um, Point me in the direction of a story. This is in reference, I believe, to Johan's article that he's um, shared. Point me in the direction of a story splashed all over the media of an elderly transgender person from India or Philippines or anywhere in the global South or a black person of any age even instead of a white mid twenties, early forties, white male transgender person as being advertised.
0: Yeah, Um, no, but this is true. I mean, in the, my past long ago, I, in my misspent youth, knew a number of of trannies who lived very precariously. Most of them used a lot of drugs, were drug dependent. They supported themselves with prostitution often, reluctantly, and, uh, and there was no network, there was no safety net for these people whatsoever. I suspect there's none today either for those people uh this is this is but this is you know this is uh in some ways the problem with every movement i mean gay rights became very white and male uh to a large extent in terms of the the marketing and and that has changed to some degree but uh not if you watch not if you watch hollywood television shows um, hero and- but
1: that makes sense right because uh uh the uh any uh dissent and uh, activism and uh, all those things needs to be uh operating uh within the uh, mainstream framework so once it does it's harmless it's you know you can say right. anything you want and it doesn't go outside of the uh framework so it bound to be um uh, uh, like that, you know, the the yeah. the tendencies of the uh, mainstreamness uh, uh, dominates, I think.
3: Yeah, Johan. Yeah, and this is, I mean, this is the problem. Basically, we we come back to time and time again, identified by by everyone from probably even Marx to even Peter and and other early left wing intellectuals. The, the problem of recuperation and of, of institutional structures that are designed to, to channel and and make harmless any type of, of, of rebellious impulse so, so how do you get around this and how do we build useful alternatives in the current situation that that's kind of the most predominant question here i think
0: yeah yeah um you got a straight it, answer yeah no i i but i was just going back to that new york times article headline unemployment is low at at what point does do these kinds of contradictions i mean presumably most of the homeless population don't have a subscription to the new york times so they probably didn't read that article. And uh, but at what point do these contradictions reach fail-safe, reach some kind of singularity, you know, that that, that uh where where the intentional lies of the government become uh, so preposterous that there's no audience for it because everybody has been excluded from that narrative almost that we're down to almost nobody who hasn't been affected by by these government policies, by in, incredible inflation, rising prices and heating our own food and, and petrol, gas, that I sound like I've been in Europe so long, gas. Um, at what point, at what point Diminishing returns, in that sense, set in. I, I don't know, but one would think soon. I want to talk about climate too in a moment. But Varun,
4: yeah, I mean, this what you're saying about this contradiction. I mean, it's it's so blatant. And you've spoken before about propaganda and what Johann just said about this sort of um, recuperation it creates this kind of layer over lived experience which is an entirely false veneer which people are now buying into so you're i mean you're constantly fighting between two worlds in that sense so there is a schism that's caused in the in the in the mind of the person so that that kind of makes the person quite inactive i think mentally to be able to you can't belong to both worlds i mean you're you, what you're what people are reading in the media is completely contradictory to what the lived experience of life is right. and that's really creating i think that tension is what is what i think i mean it's quite visible in social media but it's also very visible when you speak with people about how they think that the world makes no sense and i think that is why the world makes no sense because they right. believe what's on the media rather than the lived experience.
0: No, but, uh, but I think that's true. I think that's true. And I think that, that those contradictions. we know that the numbers of people who follow mainstream news organizations has shrunk. There's less readership. Uh, fewer people go to the movies. Fewer people watch network television a lot of this is economically determined people people don't have the time don't have leisure time to the degree they had it even 20 years ago and and i i think that that the 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 contradictions are now so acute the audience who can accept those statements from the government can listen to a White House press briefing and not laugh out loud uh, are, are shrinking. They, they have to be. But I think your point, if I'm taking it correctly, and I think this is true, is that that uh, there is a big chunk of the populace out there. We were talking about this before going on. There's a big chunk of the populace out there who are in a kind of limbo state. They neither believe nor disbelieve and largely, largely they're depressed. They fit the description of clinical depression. They are immobilized, this inertia has taken hold. And uh, because they're either on antidepressants or they have drunk themselves into a stupor or they're now drug addicted in some way or other or they just are clinically depressed and and that makes it very hard to to get up in the morning and take care of anything and people are not getting up in the morning in a sense cognitively intellectually they're not they're not waking up every day they're rather try to stay asleep because to wake up is to simply be greeted with with more bad news more yeah. anxiety uh and more paranoia so karaoke
1: the, the, the whole thing is um, 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 i mean we often um, um, talked about this, but it, uh, the whole thing is like religion, and then uh, um, um, things gets uh, ritualized. So people just follow the rituals and uh, uh, observe the uh, uh, customs uh, that uh, accompanies the uh, um, um, the policies and all those things. And uh, meanwhile, that there's no. Um, momentum for uh, revolutionary momentum. So there's no uh, outlet other than um, uh, being uh, cynical, being hopeless, uh, depressed, uh, um, or just fight among ourselves. So, you know, this, uh, again, it it makes sense and um, it's very frustrating. The, The fact that we know and we can talk about it but um, there doesn't seem to be um, concrete things we can engage and do because um, you know this prison cell is um, you know set up um, with farm um, walls <laughs> and uh, you know uh,
0: yeah uh, I... prison
1: guards and um,
0: that uh, sense of helplessness, I think, is is very acute. I think people do feel how but I think they have felt helpless for for several decades. Right.
4: Varun, Varun, yeah, but that's all I mean, this kind of learned helplessness and the denial which leads to depression is also being channeled into this transgender movement and the transhumanist movement. Because that is now where all like AI, transhumanism and transgenderism is where choice is being placed
1: right right so right you have no yeah. you have no yeah.
4: choice against the war you have no choice against killing the planet but these are the three choices that you can choose from and within so it's yeah like you can see
1: yeah there's a very the interesting
0: same. yeah go ahead go ahead no so you
1: can say, say the same thing about fascism and you know all those uh reactionally uh, momentum as well yeah. That's the option, you know, acceptable. Yeah, yeah,
4: that's. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, in this blog post that I'm working on, one of, because I try to trace back the influences of, uh, in public thinking, in, in the rise of mid-20th century fascism, the Third Reich, Mussolini, and so forth, what were the preconditions that allowed for this, what were the forces that drove it, on and on and on and on, but, but May 68 in France, and the radical movements in Germany and Italy, you had the Red Brigades and the Red Army faction in France, you had May 68, you had the Situationists, but you also had a lot of the early postmodernists, you know, uh, the people who kind of appropriated Nietzsche and turned him into a liberal. Uh, And, and the concept of self-realization, this is really interesting and this is what i'm writing on this very moment as i'm trying to wrap up this post Uh, because it was in france it became a cultural revolution and to some degree thing the energy was channeled in to to cultural matters and freedoms the right to speak out for the voiceless and things like that in germany and italy because the french students of 68 were staunchly bourgeois. In France and Italy, that, that was less so. And, and there was more involvement from factory workers and so forth in the strikes and protests and so forth. Uh, and, and they gave birth to these violent groups, terror groups, so-called. Uh, and in France, that didn't happen. And And the influence of the French in this, you can also layer over this, the evolution of psychoanalysis, it became adjustment therapy, the, the, the eclipse of Freud by Jung, you know, and Jung's a very problematic figure. As much as I like parts of Jung, he was a, a Nazi, you know, I don't want to say sympathizer, but he was perilously close to being a Nazi sympathizer. He was clearly pretty anti-Semitic. Uh, even though he liked Jewish women a lot Uh, but but and that layer was where this idea of self-realization and self-improvement came about that it's almost as if dissent became a part of an internal refigurement of the psyche or um, emotional uh, architecture of each individual is like bespoke self-realization somehow, and I kept pondering in the last couple of days. From whence came that idea? What does that mean? What does self-realization mean to people? It's a it's part of romantic idealism as well. You can go back to romantics and and look at this, but. It's, it, this is where it becomes very fascinating and very complex, I think, and uh, uh, worth worth thinking about and talking about. I think Johan.
3: Yeah, just a question for, for Corey. Uh, if you have any <clears throat> any reflections on how the the notion of, of self realization and the, the the myth or symbol of progress is being expressed in in contemporary uh, climate change discourse, as you um, have. A deep dive in for the last couple of months.
2: Hey, can I? Can we come back to that question? Just because sure. my neighbor has his music blaring blaring right now. <laughs> mute.
0: Okay, Corey. Yeah. So when Corey gets back, well, um, but let's talk about the. We can talk about the climate the climate agenda. I mean, this is. I read an article this week, I get these odd things in my news feed, God knows where they come from, some algorithm wisely sent them to me, uh, that scientists have discovered in quotation marks a ma- massive ocean beneath the the Earth's mantle, the Earth's crust. I don't understand this. This massive ocean that is partly uh, contained within this kind of rock that, never been seen before it's not quite a sponge it's not quite a sand it's not I don't know I'm I'm not an expert but but the takeaway was there is for decades scientists assumed there must be another source of water for the planet we just didn't know where it came from we (laughs) Uh, people didn't know where it came from nobody knew where it came from Uh, but there it is now it's in quotation marks again confirmed now Put that aside for a second. The point is, if this is true, it's another expression of how much science doesn't know about anything, it seems to me, because people are are debating half a you know percentage point on the thermometer they have, and they're they're talking, I love that government. Commission panel, whatever it was, where the experts couldn't answer questions about CO2 in the atmosphere, they had no idea. Anyway, uh, it's a, I'll post that in the the uh, when we get this this podcast put up, I'll put it in the the list. Uh, a link to it, and and the point is, if a discovery of this magnitude presumably was just made again there seem to always be making these things uh doesn't that suggest that your computer models for uh, co2 might not be so accurate after all because somehow <laughs> you know this is going doesn't to know. affect <laughs> that uh, i think one of the things i say in this blog post this is like a teaser to my blog post i don't mean it to do that uh is that that like that Jonathan Crary quote, uh, which I think is really good and and points out the fallacy of Marx being outdated certainly, but that <clears throat> this is, this is a, I don't know, what's the word I'm gonna use? This is like an example of, of uh, that when McLuhan said, whenever that was, that we live in a global village. And you've heard, you've heard this rhetoric now for a long time that the earth is getting smaller, we live in a global village, communication has, has shrunk the world. And I maintain this is absolutely not true. The earth is probably in a sense bigger than it's ever been. And it is not a village in any way, shape or form at all. It's a planet, it's not a village. And this has had a deleterious effect on on kind of popular tropes. Pop, I've used tropes twice in forty-five minutes. Uh, th- this theme of a global village. What that means is that white people can communicate more easily with each other. The white bourgeoisie. That's all that means. Because most certainly, the world's not. A, a village it's vast and and there are huge areas of it still unexplored that people can't even map yet and 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 Adorno would say that communication in fact I think he listed that word among his special jargon words was communication Uh, it's a it's an insidious idea because I think it's very wrong and Johan and I have talked a lot about the overvaluation of science, and, uh, and, and this bleeds into that discussion. Okay, Varun?
4: Just a quick stat that's on the National Geographic website, which says that um, the percentage of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere of the Earth is just 0.04% of all the gases present on the planet, right? In the atmosphere. And the contention of the green lobby and the renewable energies lobby and all these kind of Green New Deal people has been that 79% of emissions is causing global warming and so on. So you what basically you're saying 80% of 0.04%. That's the stat. It's not... Eighty percent of all gases on the planet. It's not that. It's not, so the and what you're saying about communication really plays a big part in this. I think because the the manipulation of how they are saying this, which actually Corey is really really pointing out in her presentation quite well, is how are they framing this conversation, and yeah. what are they framing the conversation for. For what purpose and which kind of then brings me again back to what you were saying about the global village in the sense that the homogenization process of empire works so that everybody's aligned on the same language it becomes aspirational to talk like that like you were saying before. yes
0: absolutely right? so
4: and so right. that you fit into right. the same paradigm and that's why i think also there is such a force Uh, I mean, you could force translators in equal measure, but English is forced everywhere (laughs) because it becomes this kind of, it's a very ambiguous language to use, right? Like a lot of words mean many different things and nobody really knows what's being said. So those are very interesting things to see how this, how it works and how the cognitive map of individuals is then kind of recuperated to use what uh, to use the term that you guys were saying before and well blind I mean, individual action which is something i'm just gonna just one more thing yeah well, no like,
0: please
4: Corey and i were talking about um how come well, she shared a picture of uh, a, a side street in vancouver i think which is well managed it's it's got a great amount of um of her um, plants and it, it's, it just looks great. But the point is we, we were discussing how, why don't individuals do this? Why is it always outsourced to a municipal corporation of some sort? And then we started discussing that the same will that is needed by an individual or a group to be able to manage their own street in that way is the same will that is needed to reform the world in that sense, against institutionalized oppression.
0: Right. So, no, I think um, I think that's all true. I think it's absolutely true. Corey, are you back?
2: Yeah, I mean, when I've been gardening, right, when I get out into the garden, it makes me feel like all the solutions are out, basically, in the garden, and. Um, I think for me, the lack, you know, watching so much um, destruction of the natural world, even over the past 10 years of my life, it makes me, and being in the city where my area's gone from being quite beautiful to really desolate and quite ugly, I feel it really affects me, the lack of beauty and just how it becomes normal, right? Just, it becomes normal for the new buildings to be ugly, the trees to be cut down, everything becomes just ugly, ugly and homogenized and no one notices except for people are miserable. I mean, yesterday was really different. I was outside and there's hardly anybody around and it's beautiful over 20 degrees. And all of a sudden I heard some something really magical. I heard singing and I looked over and this is sort of sad. I looked over, there's a little boy and he was about six sitting on the curb by himself singing. And I just thought how sad it was, how, why do we sing when we're young and then we grow up and you don't sing or else someone will call the cops and say you're crazy, right? <laughs> okay. And um, yeah, and anyway, I'm sort of going to jump all around here in this when I'm talking, but it's it's even sadder because this little boy lives, he's new at a foster home down the street, right? And so here he is with no family or anything really, just sort of cast aside and um and a home where you know people are paid to care for him he's not really loved and he's singing by himself and it was just so sad and and that little boy you know deserves beauty and I don't know I just thought it was amazing that somehow he still you know found it within himself to sing and (laughs) anyway Yeah, I mean, these boulevards outside all this grass, we've talked about grass before, right? Another form of colonization, really. And there's no reason in the world why we can't. I I think that is a really good beginning. You know, I think, oh, well, that's sort of done. That's not, you know, dismantling the system, but it's a beginning, right? It sort of is. It's taking back our communities into our hands. Like a lot of people know about that huge garden in LA that they ended up tearing out. You know that fed a lot of people it brings people together people get to know each other people start to talk to plan you know to live and that's really what living is um doing things like that but mm-hmm. instead now people are all inside on um, you know doing whatever they do indoors with all the windows shut and the blinds closed
0: um well yeah. and this is that that's but that's what you see in popular culture now being i mean it's it's being normalized that idea is being normalized if you're cool You don't go out on the weekend you don't you stay home i see that again and again you know
2: and and that whole climate thing like when i was talking about climate i don't know back in 2007 2008 like off to copenhagen and you know studying papers and making it into something people talked about you know at that time people rolled their eyes and didn't want to hear it and you know you you know even my own family is just sort of like oh god here she goes whatever but now climate's like, you know, you're, you know, basically um you know intelligent if you talk about it, sort of like wearing that pink cancer band on your wrist or whatever, right? You're a good person, <laughs> right? And so it's way different. And then I've just come to despise it because it's taken, you know, it's reframed everything and that I that I love and care about everything that we should all love, care about, and protect. And it's made all that stuff obsolete and unimportant. And it's all about, you know, the climate and, and have to say that, you know, like I go on about at the expense of everything else and that it is an absolute imperial project, you right. know, and I think it's important that we start, I mean, language and framing with everything is so, so critical. And I think it's important that we frame things in our own way and don't fall into those traps. It's such a enticing Um, trap to fall into, you know, the way everything is framed.
4: Guru, Yeah, I mean, mean, like she's saying, the framing idea is, I mean, let's put it into food, right? And industrialist farming, which is under control of corporations, whether it's wheat or any kind of crops or vegetables, or it's meat, is never going to be questioned. It's going to be independent farmers that are consistently bullied by right. tax, by government, by like taking away their subsidies, all kinds of shit that goes down with independent farmers, but industrialists will never get touched. And that that's the framing which goes into the climate argument in the sense that, I mean, methane and cows, so you should stop eating meat, but we are gonna produce false meat in massive industries, massive factories somewhere else. It's just, it's absurd. All of it is just right. entirely it's absurd. Just you know? absurd. No, And, and I, I want to
2: add something to that, yeah, too, please, just because please. even aviation has always been a huge thing, right, for um, climate groups, um, environmental groups. Oh, aviation is so bad for the planet and everything. And I'm not, I'm not saying that isn't, but I am saying that digital um, data centers now overtook aviation ages ago, right? And no one even looks at that. No one talks about it. No one touches it. And then as the solution, quote-unquote, solution for climate... We're going to keep doubling, tripling, quadrupling, you know, 10 times. The data is just going to grow forever, you know, until, I mean, God knows what, but it's just going to keep growing. I mean, that would be like growing aviation, double, triple, quadruple, right? What would people think if we talked about that? You know, we're going to take, oh, but we'll get everybody out of their cars. Everyone will take a plane. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so oh, do. You- uh, yeah, and, <clears throat> all they just you know, it's like what they call herding cats, right? How they just lead you wherever they want you to go.
0: Well, this is that's a that's actually a very good topic. but but, Johan, I see
3: your yeah, hand for reflection to just sort of summarize some of what you've been saying here, especially in in connection to what Corey said a couple of minutes ago. And this is something I've been I've been thinking about for, for several years. But I, I think there's an argument that that all of this somehow boils down to various forms of, of a lack of connection to to this basic natural connection to other human beings. I think the the disorientation, the, the alienation, the the diminished political agency comes in here. The the level of penetration of propaganda, the the attraction of AI, artificial humanness, the experience of disconnect with ourselves, our surroundings, our, our own bodies, everything I think boils down to this disunity among ourselves and the, <clears throat> the immense vulnerability that follows for, from from our becoming estranged to one another. I even think that disconnect from truth on a philosophical level emanates from this because truth is inherently relational it's the presence of the other inside your very being in a sense so, so i think that the solutions we, we have to look at must probably begin right here as well in this sense. um i want to
0: make a comment about about the ai thing i meant to do this a while ago uh in this conversation uh i'm seeing i can think of four, maybe five articles from uh, major news outlets over the last, just the last two weeks that were one or another version of mankind might get wiped out by AI. Runaway AI is a huge threat to civilization. Planetary survival is threatened by supercomputers they are at the verge of being able to function autonomously and uh, humans are under threat one version or another of that story has has come out and then you read the story and there's not very much actual substance to the story Uh, and they don't tell you how this might happen or why it might happen or what, what prompted this fear at this particular moment that this might happen. There's very little of that. Uh, so the question, this begs the question, why am I seeing all these articles about the threat of AI? Uh, as one critic of this said, it, this, this is, first of all, he said, this is not gonna happen. Uh, Artificial intelligence is nowhere, not remotely close to anything uh, like uh, autonomy, the self learning programs are very, very limited and they're not that that's, you know, a mislabel anyway, because they still require human input and maintenance and so forth. Uh, As he put it, you can always still pull the plug. Uh, you get and then he said it's not sci-fi we're not close to this android fantasy that you see in sci-fi so so why are we seeing this what is the point of this campaign there's all this different fear mongering there's a black hole staring at us from just beyond the sun there's a we the countless versions of of Uh, apocalyptic scenarios are trotted out, and that's been going on for a while but suddenly this runaway robot overlord thing android superpowers that threaten us which is patently not true firstly but secondly why is why am i hearing that what to what end what what see, I don't understand. to me, it's a mystery. I don't know what's being normalized. I don't know what what the economic uh, payoff is to people being afraid of supercomputers. I don't get
4: it. Varun? I think they are letting the monster loose so that they can pretend like they reined it in, I think
1: mm.
4: is right? Like in the sense That's I, interesting. Had a, yeah. I had a I had a brief exchange with one of these chat things about i I had i asked okay what's the best business model to make quick money for example right i mean that's a that's a general state of being of people i mean in india for sure definitely but how do you make a quick buck right if i have a certain amount of money the answer that came back was about um um making specific meal plans for customers according to their according to their dna right <laughs> and this is this is where it gets interesting for me because that's the narrative that the establishment has been trying to sell the public for a few years more than a few years about dna manipulation and health management and so on and so forth as if they own my health or they own what i put in my body or they own my body and so on and so forth right so that an AI, supposed AI can give me cough up some sort of bullshit answer about DNA testing. And it's, really funny. it's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. it's not, it, like you've been saying for so long, it is not intelligent. It's just a very efficient way of doing the same shit that's being, that has been <clears throat> done. So Yeah, uh,
0: it's, pre- it's predictive capacity. It, it, it can predict text. Uh, to a remarkable degree, it's very effective doing that. It does things very fast. It crunches data, processes data any way you want, very very quickly. Uh, but at great cost too, environmentally. Uh, you know these these big data centers, the, the the amount of electricity used, the upkeep, all of these things are are. Uh, probably not sustainable uh, in any way. And I should read this other paragraph of, of Jonathan Crary's, uh before we go that kind of speaks to this. Um,
2: Corey? Well, sort of picking up where Brian left off. What if the Great Reset, the fourth industrial revolution, which sounds like, wow, right? If we look at framing and language, what if it's just a shitty, te- more shitty tech? Um, you know, and now like everything green. So it's just basically reselling us the same old shit, right. To keep the social license, to keep the system going. And so therefore you get all this sci-fi and all these articles and it's just like, oh my God, get ready. Here it comes. You know, everything's going to be like crazy Jetsons, you know, sci-fi Netflix. We're going to live in this, but what if it's really just more shitty tech? that can't really do much. Like I said, on our thread, Johan, like my analysis. So unwinding my phone cord for the, you know, I do it like once a week, I sometimes just stand up on the sofa and hold it upside down. And it spins around, you know, 50 times, and then you can use it again. And then a week later, it's all bunched into a little ball. And then sometimes I unhook it from the phone and I pull it out and get Get right. it to go straighter so if it's still like that after what 100 years or whatever and i don't know <laughs> I, well I just you know like this it. is
0: where this this is where planned obsolescence enters the discussion too i mean they could make razor blades that lasted a lifetime but they intentionally don't make razor blades because that's a bad business model right uh, you sell a $10 razor blade, lasts your entire life, and you pass it on to your son. Bad business model. Uh, they could make tires that never wore out. They, they could do all kinds of things. Light bulbs could burn for 100 years. They have. Uh, but these are bad business models. So there, there's that going on. So what's the good business model for AI? Exactly? I don't know. See, I mean, there's something funny lurking around the edges of these stories that I don't fully understand because, but I suspect is is tied in to this climate discourse. There have been a lot of cracks compared to say, seven or eight years ago, when you would really be pilloried for questioning climate, right? If you said global warming is bullshit, people would, you would be ostracized. Uh, today, that's not, not the case so much. If you say I really question the, the, the particulars here, maybe the plants getting warmer, maybe it's not, but I don't know why and I don't think you know why either. Uh, you can have that conversation now more easily than you could five, six, seven years ago, because I, I think it is you can only make these predictions for so long and have them turn out to be wrong. Al Gore said in 2008, I think it was, we only have five years to save the planet. Well, that didn't turn out to be right, did it? Uh, we survived 2013, so 2014. Then 2017 was, you know, the, all these predictions. And you can go back to the 1980s, I think it was Al Gore again, and, I believe it was 1982, I'd have to look that up, said we have 25 years. If we do nothing, humankind will cease to exist. Uh, And yet, like that guy who was Mr. Ehrlich, is that his name, Ehrlich, the the population bomb guy? Keeps saying the population is, but but no, but no, boy, I don't think you could be more wrong than, than that guy has been. What we're seeing are plummeting birth rates, plummeting, falling off a cliff in places like China and, and, and Japan and all kind of Italy, absolute almost crisis level problem with that people are not having children. And there's different reasons for it in different places. Some of it is infertility, probably from all the microplastics we consume, probably from all kinds of toxicities that have not been identified yet. Science screwed up wheat. So now wheat is not the wheat the Roman legions lived on. This is wheat that makes you fat and stupid. Science has managed now to, to push GM seeds on farmers in Africa. It's been a catastrophe. Uh, and the latest is no meat. You're going to eat 3D printed meat. Uh, this is not, not going to happen. People, mankind's not going to be living on 3D printed meat. I'm I'm pretty sure of that. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's not going to happen. Uh, nor are we going to subsist on crickets and cricket murders, and And it's just not going to happen. but But there's an agenda here. and And clearly, the prefix "green" in front of anything makes it okay. Uh, I think if you see, green pedophilia, that's fine because it's green. <laughs> you could you could say anything, and it's it will be palatable if green is the prefix. Anyway, Hiroyuki and then Varun.
1: Well, I was just uh, uh, thinking. It's, I mean, it's obvious. But um, um, if AI uh, 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 dynamics is contained within the uh, uh, imperial framework, it's um, you can certainly blame uh, the AI instead of the oligarchs. Hmm. So you know, there's a function to that, definitely.
0: That's interesting, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Varun.
4: Yeah, those I mean in China they incentivized families to have only one child. And then 20 years later they were incentivizing families to have two or three children. So I mean, this kind of obsessive compulsive control of the population is also, I think it ties into also this idea of mortality and immortality, which empire seems to have that it wow. can control both angles of that and i think ai is tied into that quite a lot in the sense this kind of idea of making it sentient and uh permanent like this kind of stasis that is controllable that's i think at the core of this obsessive nature of how they're trying to build this I but think I very think, good yeah i
0: think Go i don't ahead. think
4: that, i don't think they can control it because because like you said like it's it's built on Manufactured obsolescence. It's only for profiteering, really, like Corey has so clearly pointed out. And it's only pushing propaganda, which is not even half the truth. It's just basic lies. It's just spectacle. So it's it's just it's this kind of bad toxic mix of bullshit <laughs> that that has no well, relevance. I, in, in yeah. The I
0: right. think it's interesting that question of uh, of having children, because there has been a certain stigma attached to having children now. It, it's contradictory. There's also a promotion of having children. I mean, there, it, it's all over the place. Uh, and But I think a hundred years ago, there was no ambiguity about having children, about building a family. If there were economic reasons for it, of course, still even a hundred years ago. 150 years ago there were compelling economic reasons to have a lot of children, but there 100 years ago there was no uh, ethical or moral uh, question or doubt about having children no question you had children that was a good thing having children was a good thing Norman Rockwell painted you know his whole oeuvre was was to validate having a family children's good thing Uh, and and I have four children. I have a son who's 40 something and and I have two twins who are six. I have twins who are six, I don't have four twins. I have twins who are six and I have a three-year-old. Now, people ask me, have asked me, and I'm 71. So I'm very, you know, mature fatherhood as they put it. Uh, But people have asked me over the years, younger, guys often will say I don't know about having kids on what's You have to wait for a good time to have children and my answer is always there's no bad time to have children just have them they're a fucking wonder they're the closest you can come to touching God have them it's not a bad thing it's a good thing there's no good time that that was part of this liberal Uh, that children became an accessory like is it a good time to buy that mercedes convertible or not i don't know honey uh there's no bad time uh have kids go ahead it's fine if you're if you provide them with love then you're you're doing 98 percent of what you should do as a parent and and anyway that's my sidebar psa for today you want kids have kids I can't there's no downside to having children they're wonderful they're they're miraculous you know it's I the, the amount of of knowledge you acquire through being a parent is incalculable yeah, um, Johan and then Varun yeah
3: George comments that this is this also connects with the 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 devaluation or, or of nature, the notion that, that nature is morally inferior to, to the highly developed, the artificial, the the the, the dominated and, and domesticated world, basically, because that is not progress in and we should connect this to the these the, the virtual <laughs> children, the, the virtual metaverse children being being sold to replace actual biological offspring. The, the, wow. I, I think we talked about that once. It's such yeah. a great example. Of this. Yeah, the the anti-humanness of it all.
0: Well, the the there's there. I mean, it's a good time to. He's not perfect, but it's a good time to re-read Wilhelm Reich too. Uh, uh, his sex negative book, I forget the exact title, Compulsory Sex Education. You can never forget that as America became a global power in the 20th century, that it became the global superpower at a certain point late in the 20th century, but it was one of the two. And culturally, it was predominant. Uh, the predominant cultural empire and with some justification. Uh, you can never forget that this was a Puritan nation. It was a genocidal slave owning nation and it was it was founded by Puritans and that sex negative Puritanism and de Tocqueville even mentioned, D.H. Lawrence mentioned in their visits to the United States. Uh, you can't underestimate, um, you can't overestimate I'm of, uh, the influence of the Puritans in the American psyche even today. So that sex negative uh, residue of Puritanism has never been resolved in America. And people think, oh, well, it's just those NASCAR redneck rednecks in the flyover states they're you know christian fanatics and and they have weird morality like mike pence won't walk into a room with a has a woman in it unless his wife is with him. that's true Uh, it's not just them it's the urban bourgeoisie that is just as puritanical they just don't they just don't recognize to form their Puritans and takes, I don't think. Uh,
4: Maroon Johan,
0: uh, like, and we'll sort of get to the end here, probably.
4: I guess. This conversation is reminding me of that quote: um, "It takes a village to bring up a child," and well, that's a, yeah, very. Yeah. It's very interesting because it it is no longer the case in the in general. The people like I've got friends who've got two kids, and they find it in, really difficult to manage their jobs a decent income, and two kids, schooling, food, and so on and so forth. Absolutely. The the dependence that uh, a parent or a new parent or new parents have or used to have on community is gone. It doesn't exist anymore, right? And that's um, in the sense that, that that erasure is quite symptomatic of how industrial civilization is decimating the morale of the individual to be alive. Right. And then uh, that kind of like it brings me back to what you were saying earlier, John, about about children being wonderful in the sense that they are full of wonder, which means that um, the the next moment is entirely undefined with children. The amount of time that I've, I've what I've learned from spending time with children or young kids is that. You can never, it's always unexpected, the question, the action, the desire, the thought that arises. And that's in complete opposition to what the establishment really wants from this world or what it wants to do with this world, right? Like it has a very set trajectory, so it cannot allow for that kind of wonder or beauty to exist.
0: Well, there's there's a sadistic aspect to to capitalism, I mean it 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 is structurally sadistic. it is coercive, but it also manufactures a certain kind of person who ends up sadistic. This reminds me there was a Corbett report. They reposted their two thousand and nine thing. I mean, and that's a yeah, Corbett report's a mixed bag, but but it was, a uh, segment called Your Leaders Are Psychopaths. <laughs> and um, uh, I thought of our friend Rob Snyder at that point, actually, uh, because he would he would agree. But it's a very amusing piece in a sense. The system of advanced capitalism encourages psychopathy. I
3: don't think there's any question. There's a question for it, you guys on that note. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the capitalism is sadistic. Absolutely. I think that's, that's very true and inherently. But what is the erotic allure of AI? Do you have any, any, I mean, I can't really get it. Can you reflect on that? Do you have any experience or idea? I mean, what, what's the, the libidinous draw? Yeah, um, I
0: don't know. It's a great, profound question. I agree I, because i've I don't know it, yeah. this is what I mean. There's something I'm not getting yeah about this. Uh, 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 other than people really think that Blade Runner <clears throat> is going to become true and they can buy a pleasure model, Android <laughs> that might be part of it. I don't know. but but look, the 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 transhumanist fantasy and probably to a lesser extent the transgender because look there are body dysmorphic there are cases I mean there's a legitimate fraction of people that deeply need assistance in this Uh, but but in terms of the marketed promotions it feels a lot besides being misogynistic and, and kind of Appropriating what it means to be a woman and mocking biological women for for that, uh, it it is almost like humans wanting to become androids again. There is some hmm. aspect of this that feels like that. Uh, the you know I don't know, but the transhumanists the the Yuval, whatever his name is, that Israeli. Um, uh, uh, he's always going on about, and it always sounds to me like he, he has a libidinous fantasy about about becoming technology himself. There is some kind of odd fantasy there that eroticizes right there's an aspect of submission to the yes and that too yes yeah yeah i think that's well technology digital technology is like system adaptive right we don't we adapt to the internet we don't control the internet like a tool even ivan illich said that tools normally are this thing you have control of and that's the pleasure they bring but the internet's the inverse of that in some way you become you, Jonathan Crary says all this stuff um, and I was just reading him but 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 it's true the internet is not a tool in the traditional sense and so so we become submissive and because we have to and there may be and unconscious resentment to that too, which could be fueling this kind of the, the dialectics of transhumanism and and even transgenderism, I'm not sure. It's, it's a very complicated and really good topic. Maroon, and then last thoughts from people.
4: Yeah, so give me two minutes on this, right? Uh, I think <laughs> uh, because uh, Rick Kurzweil and Peter Diamandis, the guys who head the Singularity University, especially Ray Kurzweil. If we look back from his ultimate aim that he has sort of predicted, which is the unity with the Godhead through technological artificial intelligence, then puts us back into this context, which is essentially a very patriarchal penetrative kind of contract with the universe of control, right? that he wants to put bits of um, sentient, what he calls sentient technology, all over the known universe to be able to unite with the Godhead. That is the prediction that he has made, right? But if you have to translate that into, into how the psyche is working, that means that there has to be a death and a rebirth and a reuniting with the mother, right? in terms of psychoanalysis, that's entering the womb again to die so that right. you can be reborn and stuff like that. So underneath all this narrative on how consumer culture is working around AI, I think the larger narrative of the patriarchal, violent patriarchal movement of controlling what can be seen, whether it's in immediacy or it's thousands of millions of light years away, that compounds this kind of, completely neurotic psychology of of empire right like in the sense that this is it's a it's a really dangerous game that they're trying to play and they have no fucking clue what they're actually doing
0: right well i think this is i mean this is a topic for three more podcasts and probably a bit of writing too the one of the problems with the shrinking vocabulary with the erosion of genuine narrative, people's inability to read genuine narrative and to process it because humans have for a very long time had a profoundly complex relationship, but a deep and, and uh, uh, intractable relationship with narration and, and, from, and as I've said before, I think everything is allegory. Every, everything is allegory. But now in the age of f- the fragmented thought that comes from the internet, from reading on the internet or from not reading on the internet, the screen habituations, the um, obsessive compulsive uh, touching of the phone screen, all of these things have, have meant that those those the genuine kind of mythic narratives of birth and the journey underground to emerge again reborn, all of these things, which all great writers borrow from and poach and rework, the whole idea of the tragic, um, the revealing of the tragic in a moment on stage, I mean, we could talk about theater in this, the, the nature of repetition, the Freudian idea of what that means, all of these things these are complex topics we could talk about on and on and on but it's all disappearing it's all disappearing and in its place is this fragmented uh like Ray Kurzweil Ray Kurzweil is a buffoon I mean he's a complete sent bits of sentient matter oh Oh, that's that stuff that doesn't exist. Right. I know that. Good call, Ray. It's just, you know, I mean, this is this is it it would be laughable, except so many people take this stuff seriously. And uh, and so I think Johan's question about what is the erotic allure here? What is, what are the what are the, you know, cyber phenomes, whatever those things are called, uh, that, that are, are stimulating people? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I loathe computers. I, I actually pretty much loathe technology. Now, for me, technology doesn't work. It never works. I, the simplest transaction uh, with my, you know, my electronic bank app never works. I hate all of it. I feel I lose hours of what's left of my life doing this stuff that I hate. Like Corey said, my, you know, your curled up phone court. Uh, it doesn't bode well for this idea of a global digital infrastructure functioning in any way that isn't that isn't a calamity. Uh, Ask the California uh, DMV how, how efficient they feel, their computer system feels. <laughs> Uh, okay. Any final thoughts from people? Uh, yeah, Hiro everybody, yeah, everybody wants to.
4: I'm just gonna add one more thing to Johan's question. Everybody just wants to be Neo, man. <laughs> from the Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. It is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh,
0: Hiroyuki or Corey?
2: I don't know yeah, who Ro- that is. Yes. Bryn, I don't
0: know who that is. Oh, Neo I, from the <laughs> Matrix.
3: <laughs> uh, oh,
2: Matrix. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah,
3: yeah. Okay, uh, I have seen that.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Yuki, are you still is awake? Is he awake?
1: Yeah. Is yeah, yeah, awake? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really interesting topic about the AI. And uh, the one thing I keep noticing is that it, it it's whatever it, it does, it's not attached to the uh, actual um uh social structure. uh it, doesn't reside in particular uh, social position. So it doesn't really, uh, it's not uh, subjected to the uh, material reality enforced by the empire. So um, it's a really, uh, uh, th- that's one thing that's uh, uh, different from having conversation with the uh, uh, actual person. When you're talking to uh, AI, um,
0: um no but you know eventually people are going to start talking to each other as if they're talking to it to oh, yeah. a, a, a chat machine
1: well they they already, already do already I guess. Do. yeah 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 but the thing is uh they don't have the uh actual bodies so once they acquire Bodies and the consequences, uh, punishment and reward of being in the uh, social structure—that's gonna change the uh, uh, situation. But at this point, um, there is—I uh, uh, mean, they don't—they don't get triggered; they don't get defensive about things because they are not attached to. Uh, which is posture. yes,
0: which is the definition of a psychopath, by the way.
1: Right right, right. right. You're right. 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 Right.
0: One of the right. check check point for psychopaths psychopath. Right. Um, right.
1: They they can be. Delusional. They can be yeah. unrealistic. Right. And uh, but in that uh, framework, uh, they can make sense out of it. So if you are in that kind of situation, you can uh, have conversation uh, without any problem. And, um um it's it's it's, a, it's a, a interesting thing though. It's uh, um, um, yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, uh, and Corey.
2: Yeah, I would cool? just yeah. I mean, as looking, I came across within the past couple of weeks. Right now, I guess we have ten million EVs, electric vehicles, in the world, mm-hmm. and then by twenty by twenty thirty, they want two hundred thirty million by twenty thirty. Um, 200 so 10 million to 230 million and then if you the worst case scenario for um, data centers internet um, what's it called ITC the acronym anyway the worst case scenario is that it will use half the global energy by 2030 and I believe the um, what they think it will be is about 30%. So it's just sort of amazing when you, and that's just the data, right? So when you combine this grid with cars and you combine the data with it, I mean, imagine in reality how much nuclear they plan to develop. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just massive, right? Massive, massive. And then of course, instead of preparing to resist and fight what's coming here, we're all now... Over on the transgender platform, that's become like the main thing. Whenever I get into car, turn on anything, that's what they're talking about. And meanwhile, right. these massive things are happening, happening. Um, you know, and it's they're, I, you know, the distraction. Yeah. Um, we're not, yeah. we're not looking at what's coming, and it's, it's happening. You know, in real time, this stuff.
0: Yeah. No. That's probably a good place to end because i think that's it that's Mm. um yeah remarkably insightful in fact and and it's like we've reached a point where we're being distracted from distractions we're like third tier it's like 3d chess right 3d distraction machine it's it's hard
3: yeah of course you do go ahead yeah yeah. i I know it's very it's Kind of connects both what what uh, you know what, what all of you just said in a, in a very pertinent manner. I think it's it's a little again. And he, he says in in, uh, in technological society uh, in a short um, short uh, part uh, that that in a completely technicized world, as he puts it, there will be whole categories of men who will have no place at all because universal adaptation will be required continues that those who are adaptable will be so rigorously adapted that no play in the complex, we possibly will have no, no agency. Uh, so the, the complete joining of man and machine will have the advantage, however, of making the adaptation painless and it will ins- assure the technical efficiency of the individuals who survive it. I think that's prescient in many ways.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting because it is a, it's a very interesting quote. Uh, but we'll ponder that next time I, I think my brain is starting to sleep <laughs> um and i know hiroyuki's is go back to bed hiroyuki. thank you for showing up thank you everybody um thanks to jack Littman, uh as always and uh i will do this again i hope again in a week so thanks bro hiroyuki thanks,
1: thank you
4: Night